Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, as we continue from our Songs of Christmas series, Pastor Tim brings us a message where we take a look at how King Herod would have impacted that little town of Bethlehem. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tim. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Tim. Uh, Welcome to South Harbor. Uh, I know we've welcomed you a couple times, but um, if it's your first time here, we're really glad you're with us. Uh, We have a lot to look at this morning. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2. Um, it's the same passage we looked at last week. If you were with us last week, we, we had the spotlight on the Magi, and we kind of studied who were these Magi, where were they coming from, why were they doing this journey. Uh, we're going to read the same story, but we're going to shift the spotlight to another gentleman who goes by the name of Herod the Great. Um, bef- before we get there, let me uh, just acknowledge, uh, if I act robotic in the service, I hurt my neck this week. So... Uh, turning is difficult. I, I, I'm fine. I'll be fine. But um, if I, it's really dramatic kind of turns, I apologize. Um, although adrenaline does numbers. So I, I, uh, after the first service, I realized I didn't feel anything until after I was done. And then it hurt again. So uh, second, again, maybe the second thing is, uh, if you are able to stay for Lisa Coster's, um, it's, it'll be right in the cafe. Uh, I have had the privilege of reading her book in different iterations and kind of reading some drafts and um, she has worked really hard and poured her heart into the book, and I'm really proud of her and for her. Um, it's a huge accomplishment that has been kind of, as she named her life, it's been a big portion of her life has been trying to get this story that's been in her on paper. And so if you're able to stick around, um, uh, she's worked really hard on it and uh, would love for your support in that. Um, but let's dive in. Herod the Great. Uh, my opinion, uh, Herod the Great is one of the most interesting human beings that's ever walked our planet. He's absolutely fascinating. Uh, What he did with his life, what he built, what he was able to accomplish in his years on this planet is absolutely stunning. Uh, Beyond just what he built, like physical structures and things, the man himself is just an interesting guy. Uh, What made him tick? trying to get into the inner psyche of Herod the Great. Uh, scholar after scholar have written book after book trying to figure out this guy and what made him tick, what, what drove him to do what, what he did. Um, he, his story itself, as we'll see, is like this twisted soap opera of carnage and bloodshed, um, but also of incredible feats that he was able to accomplish that we still don't really know how he did it all. And... Matthew, when he tells his Christmas story, his version, uh, we have four accounts of Jesus' life called Gospels. In Matthew's Gospel, Matthew wants you to know that uh, the life of Jesus is up against this kingdom of of Herod. Matthew wants you to know that uh, there are two kings and there are two kingdoms, and these two kings and these two kingdoms will constantly collide. So if you've been around South Harbor for any length of time. We, we come back to Herod just about every Christmas intentionally. Uh, it's my conviction that we cannot fully understand or at least appreciate the Christmas story if we don't know this rival kingdom and this rival king. Uh, to understand fully what Jesus is, is doing in his ministry, it's really, really important that we understand the world that he's coming out of. Now, um, if you are new with us, let me catch you up a little bit. Uh, last two weeks, we've been in a Christmas series. Um, it, 
Yeah, two weeks. Uh, we've been in a Christmas series, and we're calling this one the Songs of Christmas. We're looking at the Songs of Christmas, and uh, we, we spent a lot of time here last week. We said Christmas is the, the one time of year where uh, we are all singing the same songs, maybe still in our own genres, in our own like, preferred kind of music. Um, but if you have a favorite Christmas song, there's a good chance you can find some, someone you like, some musician you like that has sung that Christmas song. And uh, one of the things that's really interesting with the Christmas songs is it is the one time of the year where you can wander into the mall or Meyer or Walmart or Menards or wherever you shop, and you can hear Christian songs being sung over the loudspeakers of um, otherwise. Uh, you would never hear that. You would never hear that kind of music at Menards, but now you do. And, uh, and so we want to explore the songs. What's really helpful with the songs is it is like proclaiming the Christian message. But sometimes what can happen with the songs is we can become more familiar with the songs than with the stories that inspired the songs and, uh, and the biblical stories. And so the songs can kind of paint this idyllic picture of Christmas that actually when you read the scriptures themselves, um, the songs actually miss some of the oomph of the whole thing, right? They just kind of lack some of the power and the grit of the initial Christmas stories. Uh, for instance, that relates to this particular week's passage. Um, the song, Silent Night, Holy Night, All is Calm, All is Bright. It's really a beautiful song. It may be your favorite Christmas song. Um, and a beautiful in many ways. It kind of sets this like beautiful Christmas scene that many of us try to have in our homes. Um, but it also, in many ways, misses the absolute chaos of the first Christmas. We forget that the, first, the events of that first Christmas were so startling that the story we're going to read this morning is going to end with King Herod saying, we need to eliminate every baby boy under two who's been born in Bethlehem. Like he lays out a, a hit, a genocide on every baby boy born in Bethlehem under the age of two just because he's... He's so concerned that this baby is going to upset his kingdom. Why is Herod a, like, worried about a baby? Like, why is the king of Israel worried about a baby? This is some of the kind of stuff we want to dive into this morning. Uh, Matthew records the story. Um, we're going to, let's read it together again. Uh, if you were with us last week, we read this last week. Uh, and a warning, we are going to dive into some history this week, um, both this week and next week is a bit more history than normal for us, which was probably a bit more history than normal for you. So we are in a lot of history. Uh, if, you, if you like this stuff, um, I highly recommend a book called The Liberation of Christmas by Richard Horsley. Uh, it was out of print for a while. I had to hunt the, my copy down, but I think it's back in print probably because I keep buying it. And so I, I, I think Amazon's printing them again. I highly recommend this book. Uh, it does a really, really good job looking at the Christmas stories in their historical context. Uh, if you're not a fan of history, you will not like this book. <laughs> but otherwise, you will love this book. Um, but really, he's diving into Matthew and Luke's accounts. So they're the two that really record the Christmas stories and give some context. Um, this is Matthew's. Uh, Matthew 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. So uh, pause here. Matthew tells us the Christmas story begins by saying, uh, Jesus was born in the days of Herod the king, also known in history as Herod the Great. 
Raising the question, obvious question, who's Herod and how did Herod become the king? A little bit of back, background. Uh, at the time of Jesus, there was an empire that was also on the rise. Anyone want to wager a guess at the name of the empire? Roman Empire. Uh, at the time of Jesus, there uh, was growing in the world at the time of the birth of the early church was the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, uh, at the top of the Roman Empire was a family known as the Caesars. Uh, the Caesars. Now, uh, in our Christmas story, we're going to explore this gentleman next week. Um, uh, I find his overlap of the Gospels to be so interesting. Um, but next week, we're going to look at Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus is the, sac- he's the first emperor of Rome. He takes the Roman Republic under Julius Caesar, and he turns it into an empire. Uh, Caesar Augustus takes this Roman idea of the world, and he expands it all the way from Britain to India. The Roman Empire is one of the largest empires the world has ever seen um, before that or since that. Absolutely massive. Now, if you were Roman, you loved Caesar Augustus. He made your people strong. He put your people on the map. But if you were not Roman, and in particular, if you were one of the countries he conquered, you had a very different opinion of Caesar Augustus. For you, Caesar Augustus was the guy that you had some freedom before. You, you had some autonomy before, but now Caesar Augustus marches in and you've got Roman soldiers on your street. So there was two camps of how you thought about the Roman Empire. The Romans loved the Roman Empire. They loved Caesar Augustus. Non-Romans, not so much. And in particular, the nation of Israel, not so much which is a problem for Caesar. Because if you're Caesar, here's a problem, not a hard problem to think through. Uh, If you're Caesar, how do you you lead all of these people? How do you, if you're Caesar, how do you get them to not start begin, to begin to think like, you know what? We don't really like the Romans in our neighborhoods. We don't like what they're doing to our neighborhoods. We don't really like the Roman way of life. Uh, What if we just get together and we fight? Right, think about it. I'm guessing right now if there was another nation that invaded us, many of us would probably say, this is, this, no, we will, we will fight. Right? Like that's, so if you're Caesar, how do you keep the people from fighting? How do you keep the people in line? Yes, you can, you can like use Roman intimidation at some level, but what happens if the people decide we are, we're going to take our country back? How do you solve the problem? Caesar's solution is to appoint local leadership that people will like. Enter Herod the Great. Herod the Great is commissioned to be a puppet king or a client king of of, uh, Caesar Augustus. Herod the Great was essentially a local who was placed in power to keep rule over the people. Keep the peace, collect the taxes. That's his job. In the year 40 BC, about 40-ish years before Jesus, He's placed on the throne, and his job is keep the peace and collect the taxes. You'll represent Rome uh, to us, but you need to represent the people as well. They need to believe you're a good king. Now, um, Herod, uh, he's got a task cut out for him. To How do you get people to believe that you're a good king? Uh, people don't tend to love their boss, no matter how good their boss is. Um, but people don't tend to love their president or their king, no matter how good their president or king is. How, do you, how does he do this? 
He has a two-part solution. Uh, he, he, his two-part strategy to get everyone to love him. Number one, he says, we need to appease religious people. Give religious people what religious people want, and religious people will be on your side. So number one, we got to appease the religious. And the second thing we have to do is we have to improve the economy. If people have more money, they're less likely to think this isn't good news for us. If people are wealthier, if their jobs are a bit more secure, they're more likely to want you as their king. So his two-part strategy, we need religious people to be happy, and we need to prove to them that we're making them more money. Somebody, uh, as we were running through our slides this morning, somebody said, that's kind of basically what still is happening, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's still the political strategy for most politicians. Keep religious people happy, make people rich. That's his two-part strategy. First act is uh, we got to appease the religious. His, uh, his strategy in this is we need to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Babylonians 500 years before or so had torn down Solomon's temple. They had kind of duct taped it together in the years leading up to Jesus, but it was uh, hardly what it used to be. It was a remnant of the glory and the splendor of Solomon's day. So Herod said, we're not just going to restore this to as beautiful as Solomon made the temple. We are going to, I'm going to give you a temple worthy of your God. I am going to give you a temple so beautiful, the whole world will know that your God is truly good. He's worthy of your worship. This will be my gift to you. Now, what he did to build this temple, uh, just a, here's a model. Um, the temple itself sits on the top. It has been destroyed, as Jesus said it would be. Uh, in 70 AD, the Romans came in and they destroyed it, just like Jesus said was gonna happen. But the retaining wall that the temple was built on stands today, uh, at least portions of the retaining wall. This is the western wall, the most famous section of the wall. Um, it stands today, just the retaining wall. So not even the temple, just the thing the temple's built on. So builders, think about how like, careful you are when you pour a foundation. The foundation was impressive. Um, for instance, uh, I gotta show you, I gotta show you one thing, and I had measured it out this week. I need a volunteer. Oh, between the two of you. Scott, you just got to stand right here. That's all you got to do. Oh, stand right here. Like right, right here. Right here. Got it. We've discovered in the rabbinic, thank you. Uh, we discovered in the rabbinic temples a stone, again, foundation stones, right? Like you're going to build this thing on top of these. We found a stone that is 45 feet, 44 and a half feet long. One stone, uh, eight and a half feet depth, although we used to think it was up until 2006, they thought it was 56 feet, but now they discover that there's another stone like this turned like this right behind it. Eight and a half feet depth, 11 feet tall. When we take people to Israel, we call this Einstein, because Einstein means one stone. One stone. Uh, let me show you a picture. You can have a seat. Thanks, Scott. <laughs> Thank you, man. Uh, one stone. It weighs 300 tons. Just the one stone. Now, the reason that is so impressive to me, by the way, the stone is cut so perfectly for you builders out there that you cannot get a single piece of paper between the stones next to it. They're like perfectly cut. 
And the reason that is so impressive is because they are cut three miles away. Uh, There's this passage in the book of Kings um, when uh, the book of Kings records when Solomon built the first temple. And, And it says this, it says, in building the temple, only blocks dressed at the quarry were used and no hammer, chisel, or other iron tool was heard at the temple site while it was being built. Solomon, in building the first temple, wanted to make sure that God's city was still peaceful. So he did not want the sound of like hammering and, and labor happening in God's house. And so he built three miles away out of a quarry. He cut the stones and had them moved. Now, from our description of Solomon's temple, that's impressive, but smallish stones. Herod comes along and says, okay, if Solomon, the, your greatest king, maybe second to David, your greatest king, okay, he could do small stones, I'm going to build, I'm going to take stones 44 and a half feet long just for the foundation and have them moved. We still don't know how he did it. There's theories. Um, one of the, my favorite theories is he took trees, like logs, and he just rolled it. That theory breaks down, according to some, because it's limestone, and if you try to roll limestone, it'll chip. And so others will say, no, you have to carry those stones. Otherwise, they'll, they'll like smooth them out and then they won't fit perfectly. But we have no idea how. King Herod is brilliant. He's a brilliant builder. He's a stunning builder. Um, the historian Josephus, uh, first century Jewish historian, says that the task of building the temple was a task great enough to assure Herod's eternal remembrance. Uh, this temple was named one of the wonders of the ancient world. The whole world will look at your temple and see, wow, your God is worth serving. Uh, Josephus, um, one of the eyewitnesses of the temple project, reported that the exterior of the building lacked nothing that could astound either mind or eye. To approaching strangers, it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain, for all that was not overlaid with gold was a purest white. This is Herod's kingdom. And Herod said, this is a gift. You religious people, you love God. I want to give you a gift. Your God deserves a building worthy of his name. This is a gift from King Herod because I am a good king. Now, um, that's like the step one. Like we need to keep religious people happy. Step two, strategy number two was we also have to improve the economy. We have to prove to people that we are not going to just give them a space to worship. We're going to make you wealthy. We'll make your jobs more secure. We'll make your families have a little more food on the table. We'll make you wealthy. You, you, as your king, King Herod says, I'll make you wealthy. Now, he did lots of things to ensure this. One of the most impressive things was he built a port city, a port city that he called Caesarea Maritima or Caesarea by the sea. Caesarea, named after Caesar. This is like brown nosing 101. Um, like show Caesar how good you are. Uh, but Caesarea is a port city. Up until this, Israel had one port city. <clears throat> it was in the city of Joppa. Uh, and it was a bit of a hike. It was out of the way. And it was a small port. He built a port city in the middle of a space that everyone said, you can't build a port city here. There's no natural land barrier. You can't build a port city here. The way he builds the port city is he essentially creates an ancient form of cement. He takes some of that limestone that's found out in Jerusalem, and he mixes in some other, some other chemicals, some other dusts, and he sinks them in wooden blocks to the bottom of the sea. And as the water comes in, it creates cement. 
stunning. Uh, the, the ruins of Caesarea Maritima are absolutely uh, stunning. This is the theater. There's still, um, actually, Radiohead, one of my favorite bands, played there not too long ago. They still have concerts at uh, Caesarea Maritima. Um, it's, it's stunning. Uh, if you pan out a little bit, uh, just notice the ruins of the, ruins of the city. Um, by the way, uh, Herod had... This is the Mediterranean Sea. If you, this over here is his palace, and over here is a freshwater pool. So he had like an infinity pool before infinity pools were infinity pools. A freshwater pool in the middle of a salt sea. Impressive guy. Uh, last year, this is a, a tangent, but I'm going to go. Uh, so last year, uh, they, during the COVID season, actually, yeah, during COVID, 2021, they were putting in COVID signs. And as they're putting in COVID signs, like warning signs around masks and social distancing and all that, uh, one of the signs sank. And they realized there's like an empty room under this. And they realized that the empty room was underneath the courtroom. And what they discovered was a jail, like a giant dungeon jail cell. And now we believe that that is where Paul was held um, when Paul writes many of the letters and scriptures. Like, we just, we just found it. Uh, it is, the, whole, the whole city is impressive. This is Caesarea Maritima. Um, this is Herod the Great's kingdom. Power, money, success. Uh, I will make you rich. I will make the average working Jewish person rich. Now, Caesarea Maritima is just one project. There's others. Uh, he developed a sophisticated system for farming, especially olives, um, olive, olive oil, uh, dates, and wine. And because he opened up a port, if you were an olive farmer, now your olive oil is not just good news for your neighbors, but you can ship it out. We have found olive stones and olive oil from, we found olive stones from Capernaum in Rome. Because Herod built a port, and now you can ship. He built cisterns for collecting water, irrigation systems, storage facilities, aqueducts. Uh, this is Herod the Great's kingdom. But, there's always a but, right? There's, there's a problem with all of this, and that has to do with money. Because it costs money to build this. The illusion was... If you, if you have me as your king, I'll make you rich. And that was certainly true for some. But for others, uh, in order to fund these projects, uh, well, Herod instituted what historians refer to as triple taxation. So you were taxed by Rome. You were taxed by Herod. And that temple you love, you were taxed by the temple. You got to pay for the temple. Under Herod, what we saw happen was uh, a two-class system developed where you essentially get rid of the middle class and now you have a very, very, very wealthy and very, very, very poor. Have you ever noticed uh, Jesus talks a lot about the poor? Bumps into beggars. Uh, he will tell stories about day laborers who can't find jobs. It's because there's a lot of people in Jesus' day who are poor. There's a lot of people who can't find jobs. There's a lot of people who are resorting to begging. Jesus is talking to a problem in his actual world. Now, uh, Herod is appointed by Rome to be the king of the Jews, and with that comes two requirements. Number one, collect the taxes, and number two, keep the peace. Keep the peace, collect the taxes. 
keep the peace, collect the taxes. That's his job. Give some money back to Rome. Make sure they don't try to fight against Rome. That's his, it's the totality of his job. But the power of the position gets to Herod's head a bit. Uh, his first act as king was he needed to prove to Jerusalem that he could be trusted. He's strong. You don't resist him. So his first act uh, as king was to wage a three-year war on Jerusalem. It is one of the most bloody and gruesome wars that Josephus records. And Josephus records a lot of bloody, gruesome wars. It's an absolute massacre. This is King Herod. Uh, we know him from, again, this is to try to get into his brain. He's in, insanely paranoid and jealous. Um, just a couple of uh, highlights on his jealousy and paranoia. Uh, King Herod had 11 wives. 11 wives. Uh, his favorite wife was named Miriam. He was so worried that Miriam, when he would go back to Rome and kind of meet with Augustus in the Roman Senate, he was so worried that Miriam might find someone else that he hired a family member that in the event he doesn't come back from his trip, kill her. So worried that she might find somebody else if he were to die, just kill her. He eventually does that anyway because of another reason. He just says, no, not you. And not only does he kill her, he kills her grandfather, her mother-in-law, her brother-in-law, most of her family. His three favorite sons, he was worried. At some, like Imagine your Christmas parties. He was worried that at the Christmas party, it seemed like they wanted his job, so he killed them. He drowned the high priest in the family pool. Some military commanders questioned his leadership. He didn't like that so much, so guess what he did? He killed them and 300 of their family members. Uh, this is King Herod. King Herod was so worried that there wasn't going to be mourning in the day of his death that he organized that in the event that he was going to die, to take all of the noble, all of the elite Israeli Jewish citizens and gather them and have them moved by the army to Jericho, where they were to be killed just so people would cry on the day that he died. Are you getting the feel for Herod? Warm, fuzzy kind of guy, right? Uh, he had secret police. He had informants. He had torture chambers. Uh, he built a series of fortresses out of Jerusalem so that he could escape in the events of an attack. He wanted to make sure he could escape. One of them is known as the Herodian. Uh, this is the Herodian. Uh, it is... Impressive, to say the least. Uh, the Rodian, um, he, he wanted a fortress on a mountain, but he built it in a spot where there were no mountains. So he built a mountain, like you do. Uh, you can see this mountain from Jerusalem. Uh, you can see it from the descent into Jerusalem, a mountain called the Mount of Olives. Uh, the Mount of Olives, is, it, it looks, this is crass, I apologize, but it kind of looks like a zit in the middle of the, of the desert, right? You just see this weird-looking mountain, the Mount of Olives is where Jesus says to his disciples, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to a mountain, jump in the sea, and it would. Most think he's probably referring to the mountain that Herod built. Like, if you have faith in God's hands, your faith can do what Herod's power and wealth and strength can't do. Uh, this is King Herod. Um, you getting a feel for him? Paranoid, obsessed, always on the run, always afraid. 
Okay, um, let's go back to Matthew 2, and with a little bit of details on Herod, let's see if the passage like, hums a little differently to us. This is Matthew 2, uh, and as we read it, think about how Herod would have felt in this moment. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw a star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. How do you think Herod feels? I'm the king. You worship me. You bow down to me. You don't bow down to another king. You foreigners, you're not, you must not be clear of how we work here. You must not be sure of who the real king is. But did you see the temple? Did you see Caesarea? Did you see the fortresses? Masada, Herodian, did, did you see this? I'm the king. You worship me. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. Maybe because when King Herod is disturbed, people die. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So, Herod wants to know where the baby, this king, is supposed to be born. They quote to him the Old Testament. And it's them quoting the Old Testament that is going to cause Herod to flip his lid. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may too go worship him. Uh, and we know it's a wink-wink statement because in just a couple of verses, he's going to put a hit on every boy in the region to try to snuff out baby Jesus. Two kings, two kingdoms. That's part one. <laughs> now, um, do you have some intellectual gas in the tank yet? Can I take you down? To, can we do part two? Okay, part two. Because um, all of this answers some questions, right? We, we get a sense of, oh, this is the kind of guy that would try to kill a bunch of babies. We get that picture from Herod. But it also raises a, a couple of questions. For instance, why is Herod so paranoid? Why is Herod threatened by a baby? A baby. You built cities and fortresses. You moved the 45 five-foot stone. Why are you threatened by a baby in a no-name city like Bethlehem? Why are you threatened? And what is it about the quote from the Old Testament that's going to flip him over the edge? What is it about that particular moment that is, he's going to say, kill him, kill him? What's going on here? Um, now, in order to understand that, I need to take you on a bit of a journey back thousands of years to the beginning of the Bible because I think we missed Genesis. I miss Genesis. So we, we looked at Genesis before. We, we did not hit this in our Genesis series, but let's go back to Genesis 25 and the story of two twin boys named Jacob and Esau. We're going to sprint through the Old Testament. I, wanna, I want you to see something. But this is Genesis 25, the birth of these people. Uh, verse 21. Isaac, dad, prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebecca, became pregnant. The twin babies jostled each, 
each other within her, and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. She's like, this hurts. I don't know what's going on. These twins, I'm guessing every pregnant mom, this is a moment you've had. My wife has had this moment where she's like, why? Um, so she's praying for babies, and now all of a sudden, like, she's pregnant with the babies, but they're like fighting with her inside of her. So she comes to God, and she says, God, why is this happening? What's going on? God's going to tell her, but I don't think it's what she expected to hear. This is what God says. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. So she thought these are little boys. This is two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. So we're not just talking about babies anymore, are we? God says those two babies are going to have kids. We're going to have kids. We're going to have kids. And they're going to become two nations, rival nations, nations who hate each other. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Carrot Top. No, I'm just kidding. Esau. It's just a funny line in the Bible. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Does this sound familiar? We, we went over this before. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. And then this line. That is why he was also called Edom. Now, when we studied this back in our Genesis series, we kind of skimmed over that detail, but now that detail matters. Uh, if you have your own Bible, you're going to want to circle, highlight, underline the word Edom. Edom. Esau becomes the father of a nation known as Edom. Uh, Jacob is later renamed Israel and becomes the father of a people known as the Israelites or the nation of Israel. Edom is down here on a map. Israel is here on a map. Now Israel today stretches all the way down, but uh, the biblical landmarks are from Dan to Beersheba, so like right in this area. So it's the nation right next to Israel. Two nations are in your womb, and they're going to fight. And it turns out this is what's going to happen. Crash course through the Bible. Uh, Numbers 24, a few hundred years later, we read this. A star will come up out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the people of Sheth. Edom will be conquered. Seir's enemy will be conquered. But Israel will grow strong. So the quarrel that started in the womb has become a real quarrel. And Edom seems to be winning. They control the ancient trade route that ran, uh, essentially ran trade from Egypt to Arabia, Saudi Arabia today. Edom's winning. But the book of Numbers says, ah, remember the prophecy back to Isaac and, and Rebekah. Remember the prophecy, not forever. Edom's going down. Uh, once you get to the prophets themselves, prophet Jeremiah says this concerning Edom, I will punish him. Ezekiel says, I will stretch out my hand against Edom and kill both man and beast. Prophet Joel Edom will become a desert waste. Amos, for three sins of Edom, even for four, I will not relent. Malachi, even may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. 
They may rebuild, but I will demolish. You get a sense of the prophets? I know Edom looks strong, but they're going down. Obadiah, he gives his entire book to talking about Edom. Uh, The vision of Obadiah, this is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You'll be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame and you will be destroyed forever. But on Mount Zion, another name for Jerusalem, will be deliverance. It'll be holy, and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Then the epic climax of Obadiah's prophecy, verse 21, deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be Israel's, the Lord's. This is where the prophecy takes a radical turn. Obadiah says, okay, there's a new kingdom that will replace Edom, but it's not just going to be the kingdom of Israel. There's a new kingdom on the merge, and he calls it the kingdom of the Lord or the kingdom of God, which is exactly how Jesus describes his kingdom. Now, why do I tell you all this when I talk about Herod? Let me put the pieces together. Uh, Herod, according to Josephus, and if if you want to write down... The Antiquities of the Jews, book 12, chapter 8. Herod, Josephus tells us, is got a title. He's known as Herod the Idumean. Idumea is a Greek word. Idumean, Greek word. The Hebrew word for Idumea or Idumean is Edomite or Edom. In other words, Herod is an Edomite. He's from Esau's people. Jesus is a Israelite. He's from Jacob's people. Why, when the prophecies are quoted, does Herod flip out? He knows the prophecies, apparently. Throughout the Bible, there's prophecy after prophecy that though Edom looks strong, though they build fortresses and sit on them, though they ride high like the eagles, they're going down. You have to imagine, what prophecies is he thinking about when these magi come and say, where's this king of the Jews? Perhaps, this one jumps to mind, Numbers 24, we read it earlier, a star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel, Edom will be conquered, but Israel will grow strong. A a what will rise? We've seen his star. Where's the king? Kings carry what? Scepters. And so when Jesus comes on the scene and he says, there's a new king with a new kingdom, and the kingdom will be the Lord's, Herod says, I've heard enough. Kill him. Kill him. He's just a baby. Kill him. Uh, How do we know if we get the right baby? Then kill all of them. 
We're proof to the people once and for all that their prophecies, they're hiding behind, giving them hope. No, I'm on the throne. Kill him. It's like the tension's been building for years. And uh, Mary takes baby Jesus, wraps him, Joseph with her, and they smuggle Jesus out of the country to Egypt. Uh, Years later, um, Jesus will be smuggled back into the country uh, and will settle in the city of Nazareth to the north. Now, much is said about this time, one or two details, until Jesus is 30. When Jesus is 30, he begins his public ministry. His first sermon, and the sermon he'll repeat again and again and again, his main sermon. Mark 1, verse 15. The time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God has come near. Let me translate. It's go time. It's time. We've been waiting. We've read the prophecies. We've watched Edom continue to climb, and we said, Is the, are the prophecies true? It's go time. The kingdom will be the Lord's. We read this in church circles, and it's like the kingdom of God is polite religious language, and we kind of hear this as polite religious language, and so maybe sing some songs about it. But understand how politically divisive those words were in that context. Let's land it. Uh, You see why this matters, right? We sing songs like Silent Night and Holy Night, and um, it's a pretty song. I I love this song. Um, But the, the world Jesus is born into is a world in which these two kings and these two kingdoms are in collision. Uh, here's a picture of the Herodian, the fortress, just outside of Jerusalem. Uh, let's climb to the top of the fortress and then turn and face this way. So if you can see the theater down here. That's where the burial of Herod was. Um, the shadow of the Herodian this is Bethlehem, right? In the, the shadow of the king who put the nation of Israel on the map, a baby is being born who's going to upset everything. And Matthew begins his gospel here, and he'll come back to this again and again and again and again because Matthew wants to know that there are two kings and there are two kingdoms And we have to choose. You cannot bow down to both. You have to choose. Is it Jesus or is it Herod? Herod has power. Herod has money. Herod has success. Herod hosted, you know that Caesarea Maritima hosted the Olympics? He was so worried that no one would show up to the Olympics that he um, he decided, you know what, I don't know that anyone's going to show up to the Olympics. How do we get more athletes to show up to the Olympics? What if we don't just give a prize to the first place winner, we give a prize to the second and third place winner? Herod gave us that. Herod's successful. Herod's fingerprints are all over ancient Israel. He's got a Roman army behind him, sword and spear. Two very different kings. Um, And this is where it gets difficult for me if I'm fully, brutally honest. If I'm honest, uh, I want Jesus as my king, I don't want a megalomaniac, bloodthirsty, paranoid person as my king. However, 
uh, if I examine my own prayer life, I find that I often ask King Jesus to give me Herod's kingdom. Make me more comfortable, make me a little more healthy, would love more money, would love more stuff. Um, I wonder uh, if we examine our own hearts, how many of us find ourselves bowing our knees to King Jesus but wanting King Herod's kingdom. Can't have both, Matthew says. You gotta choose. Jesus was homeless. Herod had palaces. Jesus was vulnerable. Herod had fortresses. Uh, Herod promised you money, safety, convenience, comfort. Herod says, if, if you follow me, people will serve you. Jesus, on the other hand, says, if you're part of my kingdom, you serve. You serve. Jesus says you'll be rejected, you'll be misunderstood, you have a cross to carry. Um, how many of us uh, at Christmas, this is a message that's, I, I find this a hard wait. This is why I come back here every Christmas because I have to examine my own heart and realize so much of what I actually want in my life is actually Herod's kingdom and Jesus consistently and throughout the gospels keeps inviting us to a better kingdom but it looks nothing like Herod's kingdom. Think about the prayers you pray. But the king and his kingdom go together. You cannot parse them. And Matthew makes it really clear that we have to choose. Think about the parables. Jesus will tell parables about the kingdom of God is like. Think about the parables. It's often the rich in the parables who go away empty, and it's the poor who go away with their needs met. It's the first in the parables who become last and the last in the parables who become first. It's outsiders who are invited into the party and those who thought like they deserve to be in the party who are left on the streets. It's children and Syrian women, the enemy women, Samaritans, the enemies, uh, prodigal sons, prostitutes, lepers, thieves. They're all the ones. Jesus tells story after story and says, hey, you know the people who are part of the kingdom of God who actually see it and say, I want this? I want the king and his kingdom? It's often the very same people who were told by all everyone else, you don't get it. You don't belong in it. You're an outsider. And all the people who thought they were insiders, as Jesus tells the stories, often are on the outside saying, we thought we deserved this. Why don't we get to be part of this? Even the Christmas story, if you notice that it's the poor shepherds who in the story are told to stand up. And it's the rich magi who in the story fall on their face to the ground. It's like a picture for the rest of the gospel, right? Like this is how Jesus will overturn everything. 30 second PS. Uh, PS. Uh, you go to Israel, someday we'll get to go back to Israel, and um, it is interesting to see Herod's fingerprints all over the ancient land. The ruins are really, really impressive. We keep finding new things. It's really fun. Uh, Herod's fingerprints are all over ancient Israel. But Jesus' fingerprints are all over every human heart who has suffered, uh, every mom who at Christmas time looks at the money coming in and thinks, how are we going to make it? How do I give my kids what they want and stretch what we have? Uh, every dad or husband who's thinking, I, I don't know that I, I hate going to work, but I do it for my family. Uh, every lonely uh, 
girl who cries herself asleep on Christmas Day because she doesn't know, will I ever find someone? Herod's fingerprints are all over ancient Israel. But he's a footnote in Jesus the King's story. We don't want to forget that. Jesus' fingerprints are all over every heart of every broken person who's discovered that at the end of their rope, there is a good king. And his kingdom is actually good news. So we'll end there this morning. Um, communion is an opportunity. That's an ancient practice that Jesus practices with his disciples. Uh, and it is an opportunity to declare allegiance to, to King Jesus. Uh, I love the image of bread and wine. Uh, we use grape juice, but um, they use bread and wine because it's a meal. And meals are the great uniter, right? When you share a meal with people, you all sit at the same table. You all pass the same food. And so Jesus gives an invitation into his life with bread and with juice. Um, I encourage you this morning that to use this as an opportunity to pledge allegiance to your king, Jesus. Um, uh, as you take the bread and the juice, uh, the way we do it here is we have, uh, you, you'll take the bread and dip it into the juice. Um, it's called, we call it intinction, and then you'll eat that together. Uh, there's gluten-free option on this table and that table on the end. So this one will not have a gluten-free option. Um, but this is an opportunity at Christmas time to inspect our hearts and to say, Jesus, I, uh, I want to declare you king once again. Um, so would you join me in a word of prayer? Uh, Lord, uh, we confess that sometimes the stories of Christmas have become so common that they've become sanitized. Uh, Lord, they have become safe. Uh, for so many of us, we've rubbed the manger so many times that it has become smooth and it no longer cuts. Uh, Lord, we confess that for some of us, these stories have become so familiar that we can forget that you launched a revolution of love uh, through this moment. Uh, Lord, we become so familiar with these stories that we forget that it'll be Herod and then his kids who will oversee the crucifixion. Um, Jesus, we, um, we confess that uh, we want you to be our king and Lord, for many of us, we need you to help us see that your kingdom is actually good news. Help us to trust you in the midst of our wants, our needs, uh, what we think we deserve. Uh, Jesus, make us one church family in your image, we pray. And we pray this in your name. Amen. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, find us on the web at www.southharbor.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. On Sunday mornings, you can find our service streamed live at 9 a.m. on our Facebook page. And so once again, from all of us here at South Harbor and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.